What did I buy? Yes. I'm the recipient of the Gabrielle Bates Portugal yes, Surprise. You just won. You just won. <laughs> you both? You're like, oh, what's that? You both have won. I don't know. Give me S3. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'll Venmo you like 10 bucks. <laughs> Make it legit. Welcome to the Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over a drink we've prepared especially for them. Or occasionally, as in the case of this interview, over Zoom. I'm Gabrielle Bates. I am Duji Tom. And I am Luther Hughes. This week, we're talking with Aria Aber about epigraphs, America, and shockingly, thanks to Luther, the Cartoon Network series, Ed, Ed, and Eddie. <laughs> Our signature drink for this episode is the Duino Mojito, muddled mint and a scoop of limone sorbet in a coupe glass, topped with rum, fresh lime, and a splash of soda. Aria Aber is a writer who was raised in Germany, currently based in Oakland, where she served as the Lee Shin visiting writer at Mills College. Her poems are forthcoming or have appeared in The New Yorker, Poetry Magazine, Kenyan Review, The Poetry Review, and elsewhere. And she is the author of Hard Damage, which won the Prairie Schooner Book Prize in Poetry. She is the recipient of a writing award and a Stegner Fellowship. But before we get into our chat with Arbia, I have one question for us to consider. Did y'all know I won the 92 Y Discovery Award? That's my noise for celebration. I like that. That's new. I've never heard you do that. I just did it just now. Um just made it up. Uh, but no, seriously, uh, what do y'all think about um, award culture and contest culture? We kind of discussed it briefly in a past interview about book contests, but just overall award culture life things. I think when you win them, I'm a fan. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, when the two of you win, I'm all for it, whatever it is. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Duji, what do you think about like emerging poet awards? I don't feel like there are that many of them, but maybe I'm just not on that radar right now. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's a, it is unfortunate that there's a lot of focus on them. It does feel like there's sort of like some invisible pressure to like win them. Um, that said, um, they're also just contests and like, I think, I, I don't know, I feel like I might've said this before on this podcast, but like, because I came up in SLAM, I have like, I am totally fine with people assigning like random points totals based off of whatever the fuck happened in their day to like my poems. And like knowing full well that that's like not a reflection of my poetry, but just like, it's just like part of the thing. It's like part of how we get people to pay attention and like, you know, I wish there were a better way for more people. I wish more people were reading more poems all the time. But sometimes people read poems because there are contests attached to it. And that's cool too. Yeah, that's well said. The only two that I have consistently ever paid attention to are the 92Y Discovery Award and the Ruth Lilly, what's the rest of it? Dorothy Rosenberg, something, something. Something, something like that. Something. Um, like those are the ones where I get really excited and if I haven't heard of the writers before I immediately go and read their work and um, so it's been you know a great thing for me in terms of getting to know other like young or emerging poets over the years um, so yeah well I think it's interesting that I think this can go easily go into the conversation about what does emerging mean because people are always quote unquote emerging like they can have like three books and not be uh quote unquote well known but still be emerging so it's kind of interesting how poetry biz has like set up these like false arbitrary like buckets um this is also the idea of like even 
even the discovery award, like I'm being discovered that I've been writing public and poetry for the last five, six years, right? So it's, it's interesting how these things are, they're great, but they're arbitrary. Like there's no actual science, even science, there's no science. <laughs> there's no science. There's no science behind these actual terminologies and like labels placed on poets in particular. Yeah. Yeah, and each contest defines their terms differently. So some mm. are for poets who have yet to publish a full-length collection. Mm -hmm. Others are for poets under a certain age. Um, so yeah, each contest defines it differently, which just speaks to the point you just made. Uh, it's not like you wake up one day and suddenly you're no longer an emerging poet. You're like an established one. Like, of course, that's absurd. But I, I do appreciate the challenge of trying to like get support out there for writers at different points in their careers. And it seems like a really difficult thing to define. But uh, I appreciate that there are awards out there for people without first books. I feel like in some ways that alleviates some of the pressure of having a first book is you have other things to shoot for before that that can feel legitimizing or encouraging. Yeah. And like, I mean, I feel like it, it should also not go without saying like the conversation we're having about like awards culture and like being a quote unquote professional poet is like entirely separate from like the craft of writing poems, right? Like you should just be like writing the best possible poems and be emerging in every single poem ever like set that aside um i think to your point too gabby like there's money attached and that really fucking matters especially if you're emerging right like especially if you're new and like you know a couple thousand dollars is like gonna help like pay rent this month and like while you sort of figure out i think especially as like if you put all your eggs in the basket of writing poetry full-time um like that means a lot you know, that means a lot to a lot of people, especially when you're starting out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you for sure can't forget the money part. Yeah. There should be more money. Get money, like. Yeah. Like, there should be more <laughs> money for all poets at all stages, in all walks of life, just for, like, waking up. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You should just, like, get $1,000. I firmly believe that. <laughs> we get there. Let's have more, you know, five, ten thousand dollar prizes, just as many of them as possible. It always cracks me up when there are awards that have like a huge amount of clout attached to them, a huge amount of prestige, and I just assume there's a lot of money going along with it. And then when I find out there's not, I'm shocked. Like, remember when I thought the Discovery Award was like ten thousand dollars? Yeah, I was like, like, no, Gabby, that's not. <laughs> I really, did. I was like, I mean, surely the reason we're all excited about this is because. <laughs> and like the Yale Younger uh, book prize, I thought must have a ton of money. It's That's like zero. With no money, yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking this is highly topical and has no shelf life beyond today, but I think Eloisa Amesqua just tweeted uh, like a Michael Jordan reaction meme of like, we don't have money to pay our contributors, but our list is over 20,000 people. <laughs> yeah, but we'll be sharing money. your work with exactly. 20,000 subscribers. <laughs> it's like, it's <laughs> hilarious. You have no money, but here you're exposed to half, yeah. you know, all these thousands of people. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks. for that. Thanks for the exposure. <laughs> <laughs> we'll maybe help you pay rent eventually once you have a book, if they remember that at one yeah. point you published a poem. That's interesting to think about because I know people have shifted to only submitting work to, to places that pay for their work. And it's interesting because I, at first I was like, that seemed disingenuous to the community aspect of submitting and journals and magazines. But lately I've been like, yeah, that makes sense. Like I have to eat this week. Mm -hmm. So like, I'm going to submit, I mean, I'm not going to get paid this week, but you know, like it makes sense to submit places that you're going to get a monetary uh, thing back. I mean, it's like everything else. Like, why can't poetry be like every other artistry, right? Yeah. I mean, I do think, I do believe like 
awards are at odds with like I think for all of us the vision of like uh, our community that we want right in lieu of that right like we got to eat <laughs> people got to eat and like you can't get mad at the people who are trying to feed themselves and their families and pay the bills um it's like never it's never the winner's fault obviously it's like right. a control problem right not so like play the game like yeah like for sure apply to all these prestigious things because it is it is an accolade attached to your name like that's mm -hmm. like i think i think as poets forget sometimes that poetry does have a business side to it and part of that business is to be exposed to wide audiences with prestigious title part of it's also writing a good fucking poem and being good at it so like it can go hand in hand don't forget one without the other Mm -hmm. mm. All right, let's go talk to Aria now. <laughs> yes, we're recording. Are we, are we recording now? Yes. Okay, okay. So your book, Hard Damage, has two epigraphs one from C.D. Wright and one from Rainer Maria Rilke. And the first time I read your book, it was the second one, the one by Rilke that really lodged deep in my memory in relationship to the book as a whole. And um, for those listening, I'll read it. It goes, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror, just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. And your book takes up all of those charges and claims in the most incredible way. The poems contain so much beauty, so much terror, and there's such a rigorous, relentless, thorough engagement with Rilke in the book. So I was hoping you'd be willing to speak to your relationship with Rilke and his work and how that began. Um, thank you for this question. Um, yeah, so my relationship to Rilke actually began pretty early because I was born and raised in Germany and obviously he's a German poet and very popular in Germany. You can see his quotes all over postcards and like greeting cards and they've kind of become like aphorisms um, that people just give to each other to remind themselves of like staying centered or like praying to God or whatever hardship might, um, yeah. Find find your um, find you in your life. Um, you you'll you'll return to poetry in that way, right? And and poetry is important um, within German culture, but only um, ancient poetry for some reason. But the first time I read Wilke, I felt like even though his poetry is so old and from like a different century, it felt incredibly timeless and contemporary. His language is pretty simple. Um, that's why he's so easy to translate into English, I think. And that's why his work is also popular in the English language. Um, and I just feel like Rilke has this beautiful relationship to spirituality and to God um, that resonated with me because, I mean, I wasn't raised in a particularly religious family, but Islam was always present. And then I was sent to Catholic schools all my life for, I don't know why, <laughs> but um, <laughs> the religion and like the institution of religion was always present in my life, but I never felt like um, belonging to any type of religion, but I still felt an incredibly potent relationship to God that felt pantheistic and um, very much um, in relationship with the body as well. So not be, the spirit not being divorced from the body. And I think Rilke speaks to that a lot. And especially in that poem, I mean, it's God speaking to the you, to the addressee before he sends the you into the world, right? It's, it's talking about how you shouldn't lose God and nearby is the country they call life and don't be scared of any feeling or hardship you might face. Everything is gonna pass eventually. And um, yeah, it felt just like a poem that spoke to me on a gut level and that I never for, forget. And um, yeah, it just, I don't know, it's, it was formative to me in a way. And uh, I wanted to honor that 
obsession because I feel like a lot of times when we write poetry, um, we return to the same themes over and over again. And sometimes we um, exhaust them. But in this book, it felt like it couldn't run away from Rilke. So I had to really stay with him. Yeah. Did you find that your relationship to Rilke and his work changed having written so much in relationship to him and his work? Like, do you feel like your relationship to him is different now that you've written this book or does it feel the same? It felt mildly like an exorcism. I don't <laughs> feel as with Rilke anymore. I think I had to go through writing heart damage in order to let go a little bit. Um, I do return to him often, um, but I think what has changed for me is my relationship to him as an artist. Um, because before I started writing the book, I really looked up to him and I idolized the way he lived his life, which was uh, just for his poetry. He abandoned his family, his wife, his children. Um, he was a bad friend. Um, he used his, he used the money, um, I think him and his wife had put away for the college education of his daughter um, for his own writing to sustain himself in his career, right? So he was an asshole. He was a horrible human being. But when I was younger, I really looked up to that. I thought that is the way an artist needs to exist in the world, like prioritize mm -hmm. your art, prioritize writing above everything else. And I think um, growing up and really delving into his autobiography with how he exists in the world and comparing it to how other poets exist in the world. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just, that, that changed for me. Um, and I don't, yeah, I don't admire him as much anymore. I actually dislike mm -hmm. him as a person as much as I still love his work. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. Um, he was a bad human being. <laughs> it turns out, yeah, there are those people that make art. Um, I am curious about the I pronoun uh, in your work, um, the way you unpack it and charge it and play with the I and then sort of like repack it um, in this book to me uh, is stunning, it floors me. Um, I'm. And the most explicit way you do that is in the opening section of your long poem, Rilke and I, the section Ich and I, where you compare the German word to the English word and wonder at what this means for yourself as it exists in those different languages. Um, then, uh, of course, I tried to diagram some of the sentences in First Snow um, with no actual formal training and sentence diagramming whatsoever. Uh, shout out to WikiHow and EnglishGrammarRevolution.com. <laughs> Um, I failed terribly at that exercise. Uh, <laughs> part of my struggle was that um, part of my struggle is that I didn't know how to do it. And secondly, uh, the sentences themselves are really hard, difficult to trace because the subject in uh, are difficult to trace the subjects because the syntax is so complicated. Um, multiple clauses, independent clauses in the middle of lists of dependent clauses, verbs without their subjects. Um, all this. Uh, can't be separated from the fact that the I in the poem doesn't arrive till the very end. Um, and I'm curious, so what your relationship to the I is in your poems, and then sort of how subjectivity um, in that relationship uh, is complicated by like other languages. Thank you for this question. Um, I, I really love it because the I and syntax are both things that I think about a lot when I write poetry, but also generally when I think about language, um, especially the self, I think is such a complicated and um, fruitful site out of which the lyric springs, right? The self in relationship to like the other. Um, and the other, and like that, that tension between self and other is I think um, something that flows through all of my poems. And I think of the self, um, the boundaries of the self being kind of like fake boundaries and the self being permeable in a way that the I is permeable also. And the I isn't really um, a defined or um, solid structure, but something um, that is both inherited and invented by the self, right? So um, whatever I know about myself when I'm a child um, doesn't exist yet. Um, it's basically um, being given to me by my parents. And a lot of the history that I have in 
the way I look at the world is being inherited, um, both in a direct way and in an indirect way through um, trauma, right? Like second generation trauma um, that now scientists have proven to be true, what people knew forever. But now we have like the scientific um, background to actually um, prove it and verify it. And um, I think those aspects flow into what um, I try to explore with the eye. Um, but I also um, am interested in uh, the complicity of the self and the eye, and that's why I always try to interrogate it in my work. Um, so I don't want the eye to have an easy way out. And I want the eye also to always be in relationship with the other eye, right? The eyeball, the, the, the self and the eyeball. What am I looking at? What am I seeing? Why am I looking at these things? Why am I choosing to look away from other things? So, um, and how do I construct my selfhood by what I am choosing to look at? And um, how does what I am forced to look at also like hurt the self and um, kind of form what I construct to be my selfhood? So all of these factors flow into um, yeah, it flow, flow into how I um, write this, the lyric I or the lyric self um, or form a speaker in my work. Of course, the speaker is influenced and inspired by who I am in the real world, by the author. I don't think there is much divorce between them two, even though the speaker is not always myself. I'm um, trying to stay away from writing persona poems. I don't feel comfortable doing that. I am um, very interested in poets doing that. I don't think it's a wrong thing. I, it's just something that I don't feel very comfortable doing because I haven't researched enough. And um, yeah, I think it takes a lot of empathy, radical empathy to do that and go there. Um, and then to the second part of your question, um, with syntax and like the delay of the self arriving in that particular poem, I think that poem, First Snow, is so much about arriving in a country that is not your own, in a landscape that feels um, unfamiliar to you, where you immediately feel displaced from the topography. And um, you're just one with your environment at first. And um, your, yeah, your definition of selfhood doesn't arrive until much later. You just feel a, a certain discomfort. And that discomfort maybe um, attributes to how you construct the boundary around what you consider to be yourself and other. Um, and I'm just interested in syntax generally, to be honest. I think it's also because um, I studied Latin for a very long time in my strange Catholic school that I went to. Um, and German has a very complex grammar, um, much more complicated than English. And German also is a compound language. And um, the syntax in German is more flexible than in English. So you, can, yeah, so you can use a lot of dependent clauses and one verb can uh, relate to a subject that came much, much earlier. So that has influenced the way I approach English too because I'm always trying to make bend the English language in a yeah. way um, that feels more flexible and like stretch its possibilities, right? And syntax is the way language thinks. I think syntax is the mind of words. Um, so yeah, I, I love exploring it. Can I ask how compound words, uh, you see sort of German compound words affecting your writing in English? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yes, I think I'm interested in German. I, I think that's just, I mean, the default language that you're raised with immediately influences your consciousness, right? And the way you um, kind of metabolize the world when you uh, create thoughts um, or try to uh, articulate your feelings. Sorry about the sound <laughs> coming in. Um, but yeah, I, um, so, comp so when I look at, for example, um, yeah, pink jasmine outside my house um, and it's raining and it looks really beautiful in the gray light. Um, to describe that in English, to describe that feeling of looking at that in English would take a lot of sentences and a lot of words, whereas in German I could probably just say um, pink jasmine rain melancholy, and that would all just be one word, right? And you could create a new word, new word out of a feeling that you've never had before. And I think that creativity and flexibility of German um, is a very poetic quality, and English doesn't have that. But I am interested in the simplicity of English, of how you have to condense all of that complicated and kind of kitschy long word into maybe like one image that could also sharply represent what I'm feeling in that moment, right? So um, I do think that people like Paul Celan, 
who used a lot of compound words in German and is also very popular in translation in English um, have influenced me and the way I create my images and like the lushness of my images and some of like the more complicated um, words that I use in my work. Um, but I am also invested in the simplicity of English. So I think um, the compound, like the compound words are something that I can't really divorce myself from. They've just influenced the way I approach language in the world in general. But I also try to um, find a way not to think about that too much, you know, and to find a way to um, take English as it is. So there's a line in your book that I lean into a lot, and it's a fairly simple line. Um, it's the line is what happened to you, which is in the happened section of the longer poem, Milk and I. And I noticed that the book overall is about all these types of happenings, right? The things that happen to the I, what happens to the mother, the father, the brother, what happens to home slash country, the war itself is a type of happening, right? Um, the I happens upon another, um, thinking of the line like my mother let me happen to her. And so this leads me to believe the book, your poems are records of happenings. Um, they're like documentations. So my question is, do you think the role of poetry is to document the world around you? And if so, how do you think your poems serve as documentations? Or if not, <laughs> what do you think your poems are in service of, if you believe they're in service of anything? Um, I love that description of my, my book being like a record of happenings. Um, I do think it serves as a record of happenings in some way. Um, the word docu document or documentation is very loaded, right? Because um, it kind of relates to documentary poetics, I would say, or like the documentary technique in art in general. And that's something um, I was studying when I was approaching the book and especially like the middle section of Operation Cyclone more than any other poems in there. Because in a way, the lyric poems and like the more traditionally narrative poems that are in the book, um, their, their documentations um, as much as like a Louise Glick poem is a documentation, right? It's like a documentation of like the lyric interiority of the speaker and how they regard the world. Um, but when I think about documentary poetics, um, that's, that's more complicated because poetry of witness or documentary poetics is trying to um, be in conversation with like government texts and exposing to the public knowledge that they might usually not have any access to. So it's in, incredibly political, but it's also attempting like this fake illusion of objectivity, which I am suspicious of because documentary, both in photography and in film and in poetry, is like one of the most manipulative art forms um, because I mean, Tiger King is a documentary, <laughs> right? So it all depends on the intention of the art maker as to what they want to portray and what their ethos is um, while they're um, creating their artwork and like whose voices they want to foreground and, and where their own um, intention and politics stand in relationship to the subject that they show um, in their writing or in front of the camera. So um, I was studying a lot of like Mark Nowak's um, theory on documentary poetics. Philip Metris has written a little bit about it, um, Jill Moggy, but there isn't a lot about documentary poetry because it's still a very fresh thing. Uh, Mark Nowak has said something interesting. He said that um, documentary poet poetry is not necessarily a school of poetry, but a modality that can exist in any style. And I'm, I'm interested in that um, of it being a modality that you can have in a, in a book that's incredibly rich and lyrical as well right so um, I, I would say that yeah I mean I guess the Operation Cyclone is a documentation of what I think uh, was erased within Afghan American relations and politics and um, kept hidden for a long time or is or maybe let me revise that. I don't think my poems are documentations of something um, that exists in the outside world. I think they're adding to documents that already exist. Mm -hmm. I think they're adding like lyricism and love and grievances and, and the way that poetry can to something that has already happened and that has been documented in another way. Yeah. I have so many thoughts. Um, I love what you said about uh, your poems in some way being um, 
documenting the lyric I, why am I calling lyric I? Um, the lyric I, <laughs> um, and only because I think about, uh, and it kind of, go, kind of goes back to Dushi's question about the I, right? Like how we see the I um, being extended or uh, delayed um, in certain ways. So, so I'm thinking, it's not a question, I'm just thinking out loud, but I'm just thinking about your poems and how, um, yeah, they're not necessarily documentations, right? But there's a, a record or something um, of this eye um, that is happening throughout time and throughout uh, physical time and also, and also like mental time, if that's even a thing that I can say out loud. Um, and just thinking about like what that looks like and how that relates to right the actual political documentation of like war and suffering and grievances and how the eye plays into all these things um, lyrically. Cool. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's complicated, right? Because if you think about political poetry or like poetry that tries to capture something that exists within politics, um, I don't know, it's always so subjective, right? But you're also trying to, you're trying to capture something that's objectively true for humanity. So there is this tension between what is what what is the experience that I personally as a poet or I as the lyrics of the poem have in relationship to what is affecting the collective um, that that I am trying to put in the poem um, and what what is the role of the lyric within politics anyway or within a war right like does does the lyric have any place in in speaking about mm -hmm. war at all I think it does because the lyric speaks of the soul and the soul is what is being mutilated within a war as much as the body so i do think there is a place for the lyric there and and the self needs to acknowledge that tension i think that the the most successful poems um about war um always kind of like let in these questions that you just posed or like these thoughts these complex thoughts where you, you you're just wondering like you just need to embrace that complexity and on all of this confusion within the poem because that's the truth that you can bring to the page there is no easy answer to that i think and humans have always felt compelled to write about war right like the oldest texts that we have are about warfare in a way though they celebrate war and violence and patriotism. And now we've moved to a space where war poetry is more critical of what's happening and is like, we're grounding the victims and the so-called losers of the war more than the winners. So it's, I don't know, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm not answering anything, but <laughs> these are all just thoughts that I'm also having when I think about that. Yeah. Um, complexity of writing about war and especially like the impulse to lyrically trying like the impulse to lyrically document or write around atrocities and violence like um why do i have that impulse and is it an ethical impulse or am i just trying to recreate violence that shouldn't be recreated right i don't want to re-traumatize anyone with my work and i don't want to appropriate narratives that don't belong to me as well so i think yeah. I'm curious if you have a sense of like the lyrical we, because it seems to me like one of the questions you're sort of grappling with in that answer is like the sense of winners and losers and documentation as a way of like lyrically documenting a collective experience versus sort of the individual. Um, and then at the self, like if you feel conflicted uh, as like having sort of the both the winner and loser sort of inheriting some of both of the winner and loser um, and trying to document it like that, that's the inherent conflict in the self. So I guess, I, yeah, I'm just curious if you have um, feelings about a lyric we. I do. Um, I'm very suspicious of the we in general, not just in poetry, but also in discussions about politics and like social conflict. I'm always um, questioning like who is this monolithic we and who is the monolithic they. Um, the further we progress politically in the United States at the moment, the less suspicious I am of the we and the they because it feels like there is a direct um, 
uh, yeah, there, there is a direct border between who I belong to and who this they that tries to destroy me is, right? Like it's part, it's like right-wing neo-Nazis that belong to uh, the, the administration and like, um, and, and are agreeing with the administration. But at the same time, I think within the book, I felt incredibly suspicious of, of the we. I tried not to inhabit a we. I don't have any, I don't think I have any poems where there is a we that's not familial, um, that speaks of a collective, even though that's an, that's an aspect that happens a lot in political poetry. Um, I think you need to define who the collective is that you're speaking for. I also think that there comes a lot of responsibility if you claim to speak for a collective. Um, and the last poem in my book is kind of a gesture towards a yearning to belong to a we, right? It's like it wants to be part of a collective where it can inhabit like a community. Um, but yeah, I think it's I, I think it's necessary to define um, who is included and in we and who are we othering by creating a we, um, because a lot of times neoliberal Americans will speak um, in platitudes and include a we that excludes a lot of non-Americans or like, yeah, non-resident aliens or undocumented people. And like, I think most of the times the people who are excluded out of the collective, we um, are indigenous people who this land actually belongs to. So there is a lot of complication and I try to stay away from generalizations and um, yeah, pronouns are incredibly important in poetry, I think, and, and something difficult. Azealia, Azealia. The morning father boards a plane to Kabul. I strangle the hours in the law of my lolling Azealia. Embarrassed by her naked scent, I'm reminded of my first American morning, the yards that were yawning with jasmine and evergreen. This is what I want to excel in, gardens, elixirs of thought, no one draping the stench of severed limbs, yet the catacomb hymns for me. I prune leaves, drown soil in the sink like throes of a prayer. Dear alignment of death, stay away from my seat as I read the news. 21,600 pounds, weight of 134 of my father's, the mother of all bombs erupts acres into a guttural throb. Mother, what is the order of violence? I expect father's death every time he flies home, and sometimes I want him to dishevel into a mouthful of worms. I'd be offered a why to plead to. Indoor azaleas prefer shade, imitating roots of trees, but I don't know shit about Genesis. For 11 years, I lied about where I'm from, ashamed by the music of ending that deep, hollow bell. How much of my yearly tax is spent to bomb the dirt that birthed me is a question I never wanted to consider. Let's fuck while a farm in Nangahar erupts with dead cows, bodies, oh, the flies. No, what I need to know is how to say non-nuclear without having to say Azealia, Azealia, Azealia. To look at a page without looking away. Let's fuck until our bodies decay. Let's practice hard for heaven. Under the faucet, the Azealia perks up her thousand heads as if drunk on good news while I Google pictures home. Every mountain, every forest foregrounds a camouflaged man, a rifle, and I cannot see their faces. Who is foreign? Who native? Hmm. Uh, you were mentioning before that that you've grown outgrown it a little bit. Do you uh, mind talking about that a little bit? I think there are some images in the poem that now I find sensationalist. Mm -hmm. um, 
the stench of severed limbs in the catacomb, I think now I would cut out of there um, just because I feel like they're re-traumatizing um, and don't necessarily belong in the poem. It felt like a very urgent and visceral poem when I wrote it and I um, felt that way until I handed in the copy edits for the book. But um, yeah, ever since I, I feel uncomfortable about that. And I think if I read this poem um, at a reading, I would probably rephrase those images. Thank you. That's really uh, reassuring to hear. <laughs> um, Why is that kinda, Like, how reassuring for you, Duji? Um, well, I just think, like, there are poems that I've written that I've also outgrown. Um, I think for all of, of us. Yeah, and just um, to hear you sort of consider and make some of those choices for yourself even after the book is published, which obviously yeah. um, none of us have had the chance to do yet. Um, but, and even though we have in like journals and whatnot, it's, you know, it's even a bigger sort of thing. It is, it, it, yeah, I mean, like, I also understand why some people might not do that because right. you have to go against your ego, right? If you, if like that and, and speak about it openly but I think it's important because the work is never done and I also believe that poems are never finished yeah so it's okay to let them evolve even after they've been put in this like in the concept of a book into a world like yeah Which, what fun. is that yeah what does that even mean <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> um yeah uh cool um so my actual question um I'm curious sort of coming out of that uh, poem, um, or just, uh, you know, in the context of everything. Uh, I'm curious about the fourth section of the book, um, which is devoted uh, to sort of the United States role in war and covert military operations. Um, a couple of poems called Covert United States Involvement and Regime Change are exactly that, you know, a list of countries uh, that the U.S. was involved in, regime change, and what year. Um, those reminded me a little bit of another line uh, in the book, uh, poverty contains by necessity poetry. So I am curious if you would go as far as to say or how you feel about war contains by necessity poetry. Um, and if so, how? Um, wow. Uh, that's a big question. Um, I think, yeah, let me think about that for a second. Well, I think philosophically, war contains by necessity poetry, yes, because, or like abstract, like in, speaking in abstract terms, I think there is a lot of poetry in, in the fact that war even exists because um, war stems out of a power imbalance and out of the conviction that one country or one group of people um, is morally superior to another group of people and is thus allowed to destroy them. Or um, it comes out of the conviction that land can belong to some people and not to others, right? So um, there is poetry in morality, I think. There is poetry in ethics and considering all of that because I think it's all, it's all part of poetry to consider what is right, what is wrong in, in, on earth, um, what are our souls capable of, what are our bodies capable of, like, um, what are humans doing to each other? Like we're loving each other, we're hating each other, we're killing each other. All of that is part of poetry. So I think abstractly, yes. But when you think about it concretely, I would be, I wouldn't feel comfortable saying that there is poetry in war because that feels like I'm glorifying or romanticizing war in a way that I don't want to romanticize it. Yeah. I mean, that taps into so much of the conversation already, right? And, I'm, and I guess I'm even curious about, you mentioned, um, and I hadn't even thought of it, just like some of the oldest texts we have are about uh, poems glorifying war, right? Like that's what the Iliad is. Um, and, exactly. and like, what I guess and like sort of what is your relationship to the Iliad and sort of like that tradition and your role as a poet in sort of like, the, if that's the headwater, like, you know. Um. Yeah, I mean, the Iliad and the Odyssey and all of these texts, like Roman and ancient Greek texts that are glorifying warfare um, and are like speaking about these patriarchal idols, um, they are 
my ancestors because as soon as you write a poem you put yourself in the same room as Shakespeare and you know and 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 the Iliad and and um, all of these Greek poets um, but also I think that I am working against that right I feel like I'm more I would I wouldn't consider them um, my chosen family in terms of poetry so I want to write against glorifying warfare I want to write against um, the literary traditions that I have inherited. Um, I want to complicate and question the canon in every poem that I write because um, while I am in, writing in the same genre, I think that looking back at who I am and where I grew up, nobody would have expected me to be part of American letters, right? So I want, I want to bring that complication into my work and I want to claim space for people like me in my work and I like me in quotation marks because I don't know what that means but that anyone can write poetry right if they really study it and and have um yeah have the privileges to study it but also um carve out space in their own lives to look at the world um with love so um yeah I want to I yeah I mean that's not really answering your question is it um, what is my relationship to the Iliad? I don't care about the Iliad. For sure. That is my relationship to the Iliad. Yeah. yeah. I love it. I thought that was a great answer. Both of them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, my question is going to be about Robin, and so I want to frame this question around uh, this meme that I have come across. And when reading your work, I think of this meme, and the meme is where it's where Rolf uh, from Ed and Eddie is standing in a room looking out of a window. Do you know this meme, Maria? No, I don't know. Okay, I want to quickly share my screen to show you this meme because um, you need to know what I'm talking about. And this is this, this him staring out of a window. Okay. Right. Okay, one second. Listeners, be very patient with us. It's in the uh, show notes and we'll tweet it. It's in the show notes. <laughs> I love this. I'm so upset that this is happening right now. <laughs> yeah, so do you see what I'm talking about? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so this is the meme I think of when I was reading your poems. And I'm going to tell you why, of course. I'm going to tell you why. Yes, yes. Kind of take it in. It is Rolf standing in his room, staring out of a window. Um, cool. And so, it, okay, so for some reason, that picture gives me, like, uh, you know, uh, waiting for your husband in the war type of thing. But that's not why I'm like conflating the, that meme in your work. It's more so the longing part of it. And so in hard damage, the speaker's always pining for something or someone, right? In Funeral in Paris, there's a longing for closeness with family and home. Um, and nostalgia is not the right word. The longing is for understanding. And so oftentimes the longing is interrupted by an other or an image or a war or syntax itself, but the longing still persists. And so my, my question is, what is your relationship to longing as a capital P poet? And how has poetry enforced this relationship between you and longing? Um, yeah, I, I love that because I actually do feel like longing is very present and yearning and, and desire is very, very present in my book, but not a lot of people ask me about it, actually. Um, uh, I mean, my relationship as a capital P poet to longing, I think that's an ancient thing that I've also inherited, right? If you, mm. if you look at um, Emily Dickinson or Sappho, um, all of these female poets who were longing for unity, but even Walt Whitman, even though he's like more of the masculine maximalist um, literary ancestor that we think of in American poetry, he was longing for like more democracy and, and an, an mm. easier world, as many um, problems as he had and like um, weird political stances, right? That's what, his, that's what he attempted his poetry to be was like a gesture towards more unity. Um, and more democracy. So I think there is always yearning in poetry because otherwise, why are we writing? Why are we writing if we're not trying to discover something um, that we don't have yet? Why are we writing if we're not like trying to make a connection between two things that aren't necessarily thought of to be connected, right? Like a metaphor is kind of a gesture of yearning. And it's trying to equate two things that you don't really think to be connected. Um, so I think it's part of our makeup as poets to write from a place of desire and longing. 
but I also think that I generally am a person who revels in solitude and loneliness. And most of my creative work comes out of a place of yearning and kind of having a lack of something. Um, I find that space incredibly fulfilling creatively because it allows me to get closer to the divine in a way when I am yearning and desiring and am far removed from something, be it physically or mentally. And um, a lot of my, yeah, yeah, linguistic experiments come from a space of longing and, and yearning. And um, reading poetry has informed that and has kind of cemented that part of my personality. Um, I think of Anne Carson as an influence that you usually wouldn't think of when you read my work, but um, she's an incredible poet of desire, right? And um, all of her work has in informed me as a person and, and as a writer. Um, yeah, so, so I, yeah, smashing things together and like kind of resisting the form of what poetry is supposed to look like. So, yeah, um, I, I, yeah, I, I think yearning is a big part of, um, being a capital P poet. I think it's an almost like every poem <laughs> that I've ever read. <laughs> yeah. Um, a follow-up question to that. How has persistence played a role in your work as a poet and in your poems, um, lowercase p for poet and poet? Persistence. Um, <clears throat> do you mean, what do you mean by persistence exactly? I mean, in, in relation to this idea of longing, because I feel like longing and persistence is, you know, close cousins, right? Like to long is a persistence to, to, to reach the destination of said longing, right? But you can't, reach it without the persistence yeah. to reach it. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm questioning, um, I'm questioning, no, I'm asking you or wondering um, how persistence has played a role in your life as a uh, lowercase p poet and in your lowercase p poems. This all makes sense <laughs> in my head, so no, no, the listeners got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it makes sense. Um, I guess like persistence is an interesting concept because I think of persistence requiring you to be relentless in your quest and in your journey right and and remaining devoted to what you want to reach or you're devoted to your destination and um when that destination is kind of unreachable like the concept of home in many of my poems then that becomes like a persistence of questioning and trying to um, illuminate the subject matter from as many angles as possible and that's something that I definitely want to do in my work. And yeah, remaining persistent in questioning and remaining persistent in like not giving up um, your obsessions, I think. And um, even if you think you've written enough Rilke poems, just like continue to write them, <laughs> really exhaust yourself, you know? Like going all the way, I think is important. Um, but also, pers yeah, persistence feels like such an abstract and big um, word, which you can relate to so many aspects in writing poetry, right? Like persisting in creating imagery, persisting in your ethical convictions as to what a poem, poem's role is, persistence in like claiming your responsibility as a writer in the world. And I think it's incredibly important in crafting a poem and crafting a book and crafting a life as a writer. Stone. During the long drought, the land frizzled, then went ablaze like hair. For weeks, I swept the wings of weak and dying bees. Like my parents and their parents, having abandoned ship, the honeybees were confounded by electric frequencies. And I, I was suffering the outrage of my fate. So that was my womanhood then that great dormancy, predictable how I was instructed by my hunger. The woods austere behind their camouflage, the moon alone gorilla. The body combats what it wants. I refuse to eat my womb aesthetic, balding as a priest. Docile, I submitted to my flesh. 
never asked it questions. What did it mean to be an Afghan and a woman? I can't recall now how my life began that first September when the diagnosis chafed my knees. Was I in grief or prayer? Just the scent of uterus, wet dog and sandalwood and the bee funeral burning on my compost heap remained. What melodrama I was among bee husk, melon rind and rotten flies. But now, arid as a stone, I can admit that I wanted children only so I could name them and thus sentence them to an ancestry I lacked. Noah, princess of the animals, meaning motion and longevity, a train, a wooden ship, a white curtain hissing in the wind, and my son, Elias the faithful arrow shooting toward God. He'd be both a Muslim and a Jew. By a damson tree, we'd wet our lips, devour fruit, some worms, of course, but all the plums already blue. Wow. I love this poem so much. I think the very first time I read your book, actually, it was digitally. I had like a digital arc of it and I was traveling. I remember I was actually, I was in Europe and um, I reached this poem and I just like had to stop. I was like, <laughs> okay, like that's enough for today. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I just need to sit with, with this um, yeah. for a long time. Um, there's just so much in here and so much that um, touches beautifully and resonates with things that have come up in this conversation already around longing, around the I. Like I love this part where it's and I question mark, like set off by this in dash. Um, mm, mm, <laughs> so much. I had originally wanted to ask something else here, but um, a minute ago you brought up Whitman, and I know thanks to things like Twitter that you're working on what you're calling your America poem. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to like talk about what that means to you. Like as, and I know it's hard to talk about things when you're in the thick of writing them. So I totally respect if you don't want to talk about it, but even just talking about like what that means to you, this idea of like writing your America poem. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've wanted to write an America poem for a very long time. I felt like I couldn't because I hadn't lived in America for long enough to an actual relationship to this country and how it treats me, right? Um, but now that I'm actually in the process of becoming an, an, a resident alien, as they will call me, in this country, and um, week after week there are new anti-immigration policies posed against all types of immigrants, but now also affecting the people who are in the most privileged position, who are immigrating legally, right, for employment reasons. Um, the administration is halting those applications. A new policy has just been sent out this week. And um, I feel like I'm in a position of having Stockholm syndrome to want to stay here because I do have a very um, precious and good passport, so to say, with my German citizenship, right? I could just go to Europe and exist there, but still I feel compelled to add to American poetry and to stay here and to like live in this language and live on this land for some reason. And I'm just exploring that desire to be part of this society at a time where everything that I stand for wants to be erased here, right? Like I'm, I'm like actively trying to exist in a place that doesn't want me and um, wondering why that is, but also considering the history of America, like the political history and, and, and its landscape and what the landscape represents. And looking at Whitman, I think he's such an, he's such a complicated poet. Um, as I said, he, he was yearning for like a more unified America for a society that was different from like the society that the settlers had escaped in Europe. Um, but he was not a very nice person and his politics in his, in his private life also didn't really overlap with the politics he tried to portray in his poetry, right? So thinking about um, what it means to be 
the political or um, in quotation marks political poet versus what it means to be a citizen of a country like um, we have a lot of incredibly uh, brilliant political poets writing nowadays who are not activists at the same time we have a lot of activists who are not getting a lot of institutional recognition um, for obvious reasons um, I'm interested in those tensions and how I can bring that on the page because I think I consider myself somebody who writes maybe political poems but is not politically active, to be honest. I feel like most of my energy is directed towards the page and not the street or affecting any real change. Um, what I am changing is pretty bourgeois. I am donating money to charities. I'm not really protesting or going to activist meetings. Um, and still I feel like I am doing something that might not be um, considered polite for America with my book, with, with the list poems, with the CIA operations. Um, and then also thinking of Ginsburg, who I also mentioned in that tweet when I was talking about researching other America poems, Ginsburg was surveilled by the FBI. Um, he was, um, by the CIA, I'm sorry, not the FBI. Um, he was thought to be, uh, yeah, dangerous to the state of America because he wrote a lot of political poems. His book, Howl, was banned for a while. And yet when I think of him, I see him like Whitman as this problematic white dude who claimed a lot of privilege, right? So to think that these are some of the poets who were the most radical ones in American letters, and still they are claiming so much privilege is such an interesting problem to have as a contemporary poet because a lot of the things that Ginsburg wrote about are still incredibly relevant today. Like if you read his America poem, nothing has changed. She mentions Russia, Russia and China, and we're still in this, we still have the same rhetoric in politics, right? And we're in 2020. Like, how is that even possible? That poem is from 1951. And <laughs> it's just so interesting and complicated. Um, yeah, but those are just things that I'm considering um, when I went. Yeah, what does it mean to write an America poem? Um, yeah, I think an America poem begs you to claim a lot of space on the page, even though I also think of Langston Hughes has America poems that are shorter, right? And that are very lyrically concentrated and like beautiful and um, super poignant. Um, but I think the America poem that I'm going to write will be a long one um, because all of my feelings are extremely complicated and um, yeah, I can't contain them on one page. Can I ask a, a follow-up question? I'm interested in something you said about sort of the distinction between activist um, uh, and, or like, I guess like being a poet, but not mm -hmm. necessarily an activist. You write political poems, but not necessarily an activist. Would you say that not writing political or writing political poems is not itself activist work? Yeah, I would say that. Because I mean, I, I think there was a time in my life where I believed that a political poem could affect real change, but I don't believe that anymore. I think a political poem can a political poem can affect change in people who are already reading poetry right. and maybe propel them towards um, doing something minor. So, but I don't think it risks anyone's life. Mm. I see. Yeah, I definitely think of like political poems as affecting potentially cultural change, like, like, you know, with enough of them, like an accumulation of them, I think so rarely will one single piece of any art change any culture, um, but the accumulation of them might. Yeah, maybe you're right, an accumulation of them, if it leads to a political movement, right. If it like, inspires, if like an accumulation, like the Black Arts right. Movement, right? Like I think they affected some change. Yeah. So if there is like an actual movement, yeah, then yes. Yeah. But I think it's than one person. Yeah, 100%. And I wonder, like I think of it with my sort of um, political communications hat on, like so much of any political, like all the political communications is defined by like what is in the cultural ether, right? Like you can't necessarily wholly create anything in the political sphere. You have to be pulling it from, um, culture and so I guess I'm I am to me I, I have this I, I sort of am always asking the same question about whether writing political poems like actually does anything um and so I, yeah I'm just sort of curious about your thoughts I was curious about your thoughts around like cultural change versus like political change and urgency I guess being obviously very different a major distinction yeah 
I mean, I think about that a lot as well because, yeah, I mean, most of my influences, I would say, are political poets were also activists. I think of Adrienne Rich towards the end of her life, uh, June Jordan, um, C.D. Wright, even though she's a little bit different, but like Amiri Baraka, a lot of the people of like who were parts of the Black Arts Movement are major influences on me. And I, I look up to them when I wonder how I want to exist in the world and want, what, what I want to contribute to like, yeah, poetry as a community and poetry as an industry. Um, but I don't think I'm there yet. I think until now, most of my energy has been concentrated on like my craft and what I do on the page. And even though I might challenge some norms on the page, um, I don't think it's affecting any real change. But yeah, I, I do think it takes a, a, a collective and like um, the parameters of activism, like meetings of several poets who actually want to affect change for poetry then also to have that effect, you know? Thank you, Aria, for making me rethink my whole manuscript. Uh, and <laughs> my favorite new nickname for my co-hosts, uh, in the name of the very first cocktail Gabby will make when we're all in the same room together, hot geniuses, which is what we all are. <laughs> listeners, listeners, we love you. We hope you're feeling cute and sanitized. Remember to wash your hands. Uh, if you want to make our day, please leave us a five-star rating uh, and write us a little review on uh, iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or whatever. Um, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Poet Salon Pod uh, and send your questions um, and what recipes for what to do with leftover sourdough starter to the Poet Salon Pod at gmail.com. What? You can do you can do other things with sourdough starter. That's what people say, but I'm like, I don't know what to do. Feddy and spaghetti. Feddy and spaghetti. Feddy in the